The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of announcements before we get started. Down here on the table to my left, your right, we have the... Uh, latest financial report that you can pick up. And also, there's a notice that we posted on the Dean Bible Ministries website regarding a PBS special. I think it airs tonight. I'm not sure uh, what it is. It's part of just a 10-minute segment of a news program, and, I, and it's on the web. You can download it, especially if you have a high-speed connection. And it's on the Emerging Church now, this is the latest stage in the deterioration of Christianity in America. And so if you want to be an informed Christian as to what's going on around you, then you ought to click on this uh, video and watch it. It's just a 10-minute news report. It's pretty well done. One of the men that they interview in relation to uh, this subject is Don Carson, who's a professor up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, and he's uh, quite perceptive in his... Uh, analysis of the situation, but we, as believers, we need to be aware of what's going on uh, around us, what, what the trends are, because I think that this emerging church movement is going to become uh, the dominant trend in the next 10 to 15 years. So this will just give you a snapshot as to how far we're deteriorating and getting away from the truth of God's Word. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved." John wrote, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Well, we just did that with communion, didn't we? I'll just open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us in your word, and that this is absolute truth. You revealed yourself to us in word and also in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living word. And he is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus also said, we shall know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And then he identified the truth as your word. Thy word is truth. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we might recognize that this is not about us. It's about what you have revealed to us and that this information is important for our own spiritual life in advance. And it's important for us to understand in terms of 
all that goes on around us, shaping the way we think, that we might think biblically and not as the world around us. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the second chapter of Revelation on our fourth letter, the letter to the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2.18 states, And to the angel that is the heavenly court officer who is recording the events in the church, there, uh, the commendations and condemnations from the judge of all mankind, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Thyatira is the smallest of the cities that these letters go to, but it was nevertheless important. It was important because it sat astride the trade routes, three major trade routes, that took goods from the east and moved them to the west. There was tremendous commerce between Thyatira and the other cities of the seven letters to the seven churches. Thyatira was not as immersed in the religious paganism of the day as Pergamum was. Clearly, there were all of the temples to all of the Greek deities and all of the other uh, fertility gods and goddesses, but that wasn't the primary problem here as it was in the other cities. There wasn't this overt persecution. However, it was a more subtle form of persecution and hostility to uh, Christians. In Thyatira, Apollo was the chief deity. It was often thought that Apollo was incarnate in the form of the Caesar, so they merged the worship of Apollo with the worship of Caesar. Another major factor in Thyatira which we studied is that there were a vast number of trades operative in the city. You had the, those who dealt with uh, textiles, you had those that were the metal workers, you had those who were uh, carpenters and craftsmen, and each of these businesses each had its own guild. And at the head of each guild was a leader who pretty much set the standards for the guild. And if you were going to be a member in good standing, and if you were going to benefit from the association with the guild, then you would have to participate in the various social events that were involved with that guild, and these were all carried out in the local temple, whether it was the temple uh, to Apollo or to Athena, or whether it was the temple to uh, Dionysius. Whichever god or goddess was the patron god or goddess to that particular guild, if you were in that guild, if you expected to have work, and if you expected to uh, advance any in your area, then you had to participate in these things. Now, that presented a major conflict for all the Christians in Thyatira because when you went to these banquets, they just weren't simply, simply a time of eating. There were toasts to the gods or goddesses, prayers of dedication to whichever god or goddess was the patron uh, of that particular guild, and then you ate meat that had been sacrificed to these idols. Now, this is a different scenario than what we have in, in Corinthians. 
In Corinthians, remember, there is this section that deals with doubtful things in Corinth and whether or not Christians can go to another person's home and be served meat that had been uh, utilized in these rituals. And Paul said, well, that's up to you. That's really a gray area. If it's a stumbling block, then don't do it because it may create a problem for another believer. But that's a gray area. This isn't a gray area. The issue was addressed in Acts 15 of what was called the First Jerusalem Council, and it's addressed here in a couple of these different letters. Because this isn't simply eating the meat that had been sacrificed to, idol, to an idol at some later date. It is going to the temple and participating in the feast, and in that sense it is giving your approval of the entire worship, and it puts the believer in an extremely vulnerable position where he is uh, exposed to all the false religious concepts, and his very presence not only opens uh, him up to exposure to these ideas and where the cosmic ideas, the world system uh, ideas continue to be reinforced, but it is also opens them and exposes them to uh, demon influence. Now, the third thing that would take place is after you ate and you drank, and they would drink until they were drunk, then there would be the typical orgy with the uh, temple priestess, or temple prostitutes, and the, the role of the priests and the priestesses in the temples, uh, especially those related to the fertility worship, was where the sexual immorality came into play. So just as we saw in Pergamum, you have the same problem here in Thyatira, and that is the compromise over these issues in order to get along socially, in order to be able to advance uh, in terms of your business, in terms of your trade, in order to get business, in order to uh, be involved in what we would call the good old boy network, you had to participate in these things. And if you didn't, then you would be ostracized. And so this put Christians in a difficult position because of the very nature of the situation. It's not any different today, and I predict it's going to get worse. I've talked over the years to, with different people who've been involved in different corporations, and they have to go through various things, uh, various uh, ongoing education types of things, uh, sensitivity training, uh, whatever it may be, the Stephen Covey training, all of these things that are so loaded with human viewpoint that uh, they, they really take exception to it. But if they don't go, then it uh, counts against them, whether you're in education, whether you're in business, whether you're in sales. To get along, to make these contacts, you often have to go to these kinds of, of uh, training sessions. And that is going to get worse. And this is a decision that believers have to make, is whether it's my job or whether it's my spiritual life. And as we see the government enforcing certain policies on corporations uh, more and more, if you move up the chain of command in a corporation and take on responsibility, then you find yourself as a believer having to enforce policies in a company that are contrary to the Word of God. And as that happens, what is, what is involved is a compromise of your own integrity in your soul. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's, it's going to be very gradual. And so as a believer, you have to take in the Word of God. This is not a time in history for spiritual wimps or for those who just want to show up in church once a week and sort of get their religious button pushed. 
This is a time when we need believers who are going to study the Word and have the spiritual courage to take a stand for Jesus Christ and for the truth of God's Word, no matter what it might cost them in relation to jobs, career, social standing, political influence, or whatever it may be. What had happened in Thyatira was a complete breakdown of this. They compromised their integrity. So Thyatira is the city where the church had compromised their integrity. Now, we go through all of these letters and we see various sections in the letter. The commission, which is the address that uh, opens each letter indicating the church involved. Second, there's a character reference citing a specific attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, there is a section of commendation in all but two of them. Fourth, there is a section of condemnation in all but two of them. Fifth, there is a prescription for recovery, a correction. Sixth, there is a call to listen and to apply the Word of God. See, the Word of God is not about information. It's about change. It's about applying that information to your life. Seventh, there is a challenge of a personal reward for those who overcome and advance in the spiritual life. So the first image is of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Now this theme of his deity plays through this uh, short evaluation. He is one who has eyes like a flame of fire. This is a reference to his role as a judge. He has piercing knowledge, complete and thorough knowledge of every believer. And his feet like fine brass is a reference to the fact that he himself has gone through the refining fire. He was tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. Verse 19, which we studied last time, we see the commendation. I know fully, oida, I have complete omniscience of your production. This is the corrected translation. I know your production, everything that you do, good and bad. Even your love and faith, these are the two uh, attributes, character qualities that are produced by God the Holy Spirit in the life of the advancing believer, the believer who is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ. And these then produce external results, production, that is service, Christian service in the local church, and endurance. This is one reason you have been given a spiritual gift. Now, you don't have to know your spiritual gift in order to utilize your spiritual gift. But God gave every believer at the instant of salvation a spiritual gift. These are uh, delegated by God the Son to God the Holy Spirit, who gives each believer with that package at salvation at least one spiritual gift. And so it is your responsibility as you mature to function in that spiritual gift. Once again, it doesn't mean you have to know it, because there's different manifestations, especially of gifts of service. There's all kinds of different gifts of service. You can be uh, one who helps clean a church, or you can be one who helps with the administration uh, of the church in the sense of a secretary or some other assistant. You can be a song leader. You can play the piano or organ. All of these are just different manifestations of the gift of service, But the gifts were given to believers for service to one another. And if you're isolated somewhere, and I know there are people in this country, just as there were in the ancient world, who are isolated. They're not in a town or a city where there's a 
church where they can learn the Word and grow and mature. But that's viewed in the Scripture as sort of an exception. The ideal, the standard is that believers would congregate together and they would be able to utilize their spiritual gifts for the edification service of one another. And so this congregation has a core of believers who are maturing. They, are, they understand the issues. They're focused on doctrine. They're applying doctrine. They're walking by the Spirit. They are not guilty of compromise. And so they are praised. And as they advance and mature, their recent works are greater than their former works, indicating that real spiritual growth has taken place. Now we come to verse 20, which is the section for the uh, condemnation. And the condemnation extends from verse 20 down through verse 25. Here we read, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things, sacrifice to idols. Now what we see here is some trends that have showed up in the previous letters. As we reflected when our study of Pergamum, you had the same thing. There the writer indicated that they were related to the doctrines of Balaam and the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. So there were certain similarities. In fact, what we know from the sparse amount of evidence that we have of what was going on in the Roman Empire at this time is that there were various groups that were sort of splintering off of Christianity as they uh, merged their pagan ideas with Christianity. And so we, we don't have a record of all of these different groups. Some of them were fairly localized, but... Here we have a reference to one group that were the followers of Balaam, another group that were the Nicolaitans, and in uh, uh, Thyatira we have a group that's following Jezebel. But they all seem to have the same things in common, and that is eating things sacrificed to idols, a promotion of sexual immorality, uh, an overall atmosphere of antinomianism where they didn't take the standards of Scripture seriously so that they were compromising, and they have different levels of compromise, so that the church of, Thi- uh, of Pergamum is not as, has not deteriorated as far as the church of Thyatira. The church of Ephesus has not deteriorated as far as the church of Pergamum. In fact, the church of Ephesus, as we saw, is well praised, and the only negative is that they have lost their first love. But this they have. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And then the church of Smyrna had no condemnation. The church of Pergamum was condemned because they had those who held the doctrine of Balaam. Now, they allowed that in the congregation. We go to another step in the church of Thyatira in that they permit this to be taught in the church. Now, it wasn't taught in the Pergamum church. There were just those that held the doctrine that were a part of the church, and therefore their very presence did have an influence. But in the church of Thyatira, there is an overt, active acceptance, tolerance, and a promotion of these doctrines through the teaching of a woman that is identified as Jezebel. 
Now, if we look at the translation of this from the Greek, it doesn't say as the New King James does. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. It picks up that phrase, few things, from the previous letter of Pergamum. Literally in the Greek it says, there's, it starts with a contrast, Allah, but, a strong contrast, but I have against you. See, it's very abrupt. I, I know your works, love, service, I know your, uh, I know your production, that is your love and faith, even your service and your endurance. And as for your Production, the last, or greater than the first, he says, but I have against you. See, it's a stark contrast. He's listed various positive things, and then he abruptly shifts, but I have against you that you allow the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce, literally both to teach and seduce. The word allow is an interesting word. It's the Greek word afiemi. It is a present active indicative here, second person plural, and afiemi is the same word we have in 1 John 1 9 for forgiveness. It means to uh, let something go in its root meaning. Now, the present active indicative here is a customary or habitual present, which indicates that this is an ongoing situation. It's gone on not just for days, but weeks, months, years. This is the standard operating mentality of the church. And the concept of afiemi means not only to let go or to send away, which is where we get the idea of forgiveness, but it also means to allow, to permit, or to tolerate. And that's the idea in this context. They are allowing Jezebel... That is simply a name that is a reference to an anonymous individual. They're allowing this woman who claims to be a prophetess to get up and to teach and to deceive or seduce the congregation. So there is a very active involvement in this activity. It's not passive. They are permitting her. They are going along with this. They think this is fine. They are giving it their approval. So they are allowing this to take place. Now, the woman is called Jezebel. That's our next thing we want to look at is what that means. This is the woman Jezebel. Now, Jezebel here is taken from an Old Testament episode. Jezebel was the wife of one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, the eighth king of the northern kingdom of Israel, whose name was Ahab. And when Ahab came along, he was the son of his father Omri. And Omri was one of the most well-known generals in the ancient world. In fact, he's attested in various Assyrian tablets that we have, as, as well as what's called the Moabite stone, King Misha. And so he was quite victorious in battle. But even though he was victorious in battle and victorious in protecting the borders of the northern kingdom... His compromises with evil and with idolatry led to the nation's ultimate defeat. So it is not all about military prowess. It is ultimately all about spiritual integrity. And if a nation gives up their spiritual integrity, then they will fall. And it does not matter how great their technology is. It doesn't matter how much money they're spending on uh, the military or 
uh, how well trained the military is, the most important issue is always the spirituality of the nation. And Omri set the stage for the destruction of the northern kingdom because he entered into an alliance with a nation that was on the northwestern border of Israel, which was known as Phoenicia. And the king of the Phoenicians was a man named Ethbaal, and that last part of his name tells you his religious orientation. It was toward Baal, the god of the Phoenicians, and Baal was the storm god, the fertility god, and in, in uh, all actuality, Ethbaal was the high priest of Baal worship. And he had a beautiful and intelligent daughter by the name of Jezebel. And it is the, has been the practice for many, many centuries that if you want to cement an alliance between two nations, then you take the uh, offspring of the two different kings and you have them get married. So he married his son Ahab to Jezebel. And when Jezebel came, she brought with her as part of her entourage 400 priests of Baal and 450 priests of the Asherah. And this brought a worse level of idolatry into the northern kingdom. They had already been following the uh, golden calves that had been worshipped ever since Jeroboam had led a tax revolt against Rehoboam and separated the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom. But along came... Ahab, and it's, the scripture says that his sins were worse than the seven previous kings of the northern kingdom. And this Jezebel that he married had been brought up in the court of her father, and there wasn't an official king per se in Phoenicia. You got there through devious means and through lots of intrigue and deception and manipulation. And so she was schooled in all of the manipulative arts of the political system in Phoenicia. And she learned her lessons well, and she was brilliant, and she was beautiful, and she was attractive. And people would be attracted to her and want to be in her favor because she was also very uh, wicked and very vindictive. And if you weren't on her good side, then you were probably dead. So this is uh, not the place to be in terms of her bad side. So people always sought to uh, be to curry favor with her and to do what she wanted. And every time you try to do what a tyrant wants to do because you think that somehow you're going to get something out of it, you just compromise your integrity a little more. So what we see in Jezebel is that she was beautiful, she was brilliant, she was manipulative, she introduced a false religious system uh, into the northern kingdom that involved uh, sexual immorality, the fertility cult, and all of those systems. So uh, we see that parallel. This woman who is anonymous in the letter to Thyatira follows the same pattern. She is introducing a greater level of evil into the church of Thyatira. And they, she is introducing the aspects of the fertility cult related to the worship of Dionysius and some of the other gods and goddesses in the Greek system. And just as Ahab was weak and was manipulated by Jezebel, and just as because of a lack of doctrine in their soul, the people in the northern kingdom of Israel were manipulated by Jezebel, so too the church in Thyatira is being manipulated 
by their Jezebel. And because there's no doctrine in their soul and there's no willingness to stand firm on the truth, they are no match for Jezebel. Just as the Old Testament Jezebel promoted sexual licentiousness, moral compromise, and spiritual degeneracy, the New Testament Jezebel, the Jezebel of Thyatira, did the same thing. And she was manipulative, she was seductive, and she made people feel good about what they were doing and that it was not a compromise of their integrity. See, Satan and satanic doctrine never comes right out and shows you what the dangers are. And this is what was going on. So you have the woman Jezebel, and she claimed to be a prophetess. Now you could get away with this at this time at the end of the first century. It wasn't clear yet that the gift of prophecy had disappeared. Remember, the gift of prophecy doesn't disappear until the closing of the canon. And it's, the canon isn't closed until Revelation is completed, the book of Revelation. And I believe it took some time before that was fully recognized. You began to compl- uh, collect the canon. So there may have been a 10 or 20 year transition period when some of these revelatory gifts were still operational until uh, the canon began to fully circulate. So what we had in the, at the end of the first century was a continuation of the gift of prophecy. Now, the gift of prophecy was not a leadership gift. The gift of prophecy was not a communication gift. The gift of prophecy was a revelatory gift. Therefore, the authority that was associated with that was the authority of the Word of God that is revealed, not the authority of the individual who was a who was utilizing the gift of prophecy. Therefore, women could have the gift of prophecy. And there are two situations in the Scripture where it is affirmed that women had the gift of prophecy. In Acts 21, verse 9, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. Now, as I've tried to explain this before, the gift of prophecy involved an individual as a mouthpiece. God revealed certain things to the prophet, thus saith the Lord. And so there is no interpretation involved. There's no authority of teaching involved. There is simply an individual who is repeating what God said, thus saith the Lord. Teaching, on the other hand, involves study and interpretation. It is an office that had an inherent authority for the individual who held The office. And because of that, the Apostle Paul prohibited women from teaching or having authority over men. This is seen in, uh, let's go to the verse. Maybe I'm ahead of myself here. Well, I didn't get it in. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 8 to 11 where there is a prohibition of women teaching the Word of God. Timothy says in verse 11, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. 
Now that is in relationship to the meeting of the local church. Now today we do something that they didn't have back then, and that is uh, Sunday school. We have training classes for children. This doesn't apply to children. I believe the issue here is after puberty. What's interesting in this verse is that the construction in the English makes it look like this. That Paul is prohibiting two things. Teaching and having authority. And it looks as if both of these verbs have as their object males. So it looks like it's teaching men or having authority over men. That's probably how you've heard it taught, that women shouldn't teach men. But that's not how the syntax of the passage is constructed. If you were to, just putting this in the Greek word order, the very first word is the present active infinitive of teaching, to teach. Then Paul says, to teach I do not permit a woman nor to have authority, there's your second infinitive, over a male. Now when you get down, you look at this prepositional phrase down here, over a male, that relates to the near infinitive, which is having authority. The Apostle Paul constructed this in such a way as the verb or the infinitive to teach is as far away from the concept of over a male as it can possibly be and still be in the same sentence. He wanted to make it clear that the concept of over a male is only related to authority, not to teaching. So it's a very strong statement. I don't allow women to teach the Word of God. Period. Now that doesn't apply, as I said, to Sunday school, to teaching children, to teaching infants up to the age of puberty. But in my view, this pretty much excludes all of the various women's ministries where you have uh, women teaching women. When you get the justification that is usually given for that is found in Titus chapter 2, where Paul says the older women are to teach the younger women. But look at what they're supposed to teach the younger women. And pay attention to this, those of you who would, might admit to be older women. Older women are to teach younger women how to love their husbands, how to discipline their children, how to be good workers in the home. In other words, it is the, uh, the role of the older woman who has learned the Word of God, learned what it means to be subordinate to her husband to help the younger women get through those hurdles and learn how to be a good wife. The context of Titus 2 is not talking about older women teaching in a classroom setting the Bible to younger women. So this is a concept that just just doesn't play well in our culture. I mean, we have become so immersed by the doctrines of feminism that to even teach this in some context, uh, you have people get up and walk out. Oh, I've been called all kinds of things because I teach this. But this is what the Word of God says, not my opinion. It's what the Word of God... Frankly, I'd rather take a razor blade to this because it's caused me such heartache over the years. But this is what the truth says. Now, Jezebel claims to be a prophetess. 
And then as a result of that, she is teaching. She claims to be a prophetess, both to teach and deceive. And the verb there, to teach, is the same verb that's used in 1 Timothy 2, uh, 9, or excuse me, 2.10, which is to, which is didasco, which has to do with the authoritative exposition or explanation and interpretation of the Word of God. So she is both teaching and second, she is deceiving planeo. She is deceiving my servants. Now this is a very important thing to note here, is the object of her teaching and deception are believers. That Christ identifies them as my servants. They're not unbelievers, they are believers. And she is both teaching and deceiving them to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. It's okay, just use 1 John 1, 9 afterwards and everything's great. Just confess your sin, you'll be back in fellowship and you had a great night. You might be a little hung over the next day, but everything's okay. But the Lord is condemning this. Verse 21, he says, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Now, the idea here is grace. You see grace written all over this verse. See, God doesn't lower the boom on us immediately when we get out of fellowship. Even if we have sin patterns in our life that we just allow to hang around for year after year after year, the Lord deals with us in grace, not in some sort of harsh judgment. So he says, I gave her time. Time goes by months, maybe years, to give her the opportunity to respond positively to the teaching of the Word of God. The word that is used for repent is the Greek word metanoeo. And this is very crucial for understanding this passage. I gave her time to repent. Is the aorist active subjunctive indicating the subjunctive is always the mood of potential, and that indicates volition. So I gave her time in order that she might repent. Now, what is she repenting from? See, this is an important thing to understand today is the role of repentance in relationship to salvation. Is this woman a believer or an unbeliever? This woman is a believer. She is not an unbeliever. She is a deceived, self-deceived believer as well as one who's deceiving other words, deceiving others. She is called to repentance just as the Lord Jesus Christ calls the other churches to repentance. Ephesus was called to repentance of their sin. Now, it's not repentance from unbelief. See, the salvation message is to repent from your unbelief in Jesus Christ. Because the issue at salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 20.31, John says, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The Gospel of John is written for one primary purpose, and that is to explain the Gospel. Now, if repentance is part of salvation, John never mentions it. He never mentions it in the Gospel of John. He never mentions it in 1 John. And when we come to the book of Revelation, repentance is mentioned in 
five of these seven letters, it's mentioned eight times, the verb or the noun is used up to eight times in these short evaluative reports, and it's always addressed to believers in terms of changing thought and behavior in their Christian life. Repentance is not the equivalent to confession. Confession is a starting point. We may confess a lot before we ever get to that point where we repent. Because repentance really means change. It doesn't mean remorse. It doesn't mean feeling sorry for your sins. It means changing. And sometimes it takes a while before enough doctrine gets into our soul to where there is true, significant change in our behavior patterns. Frequently, the Word of God addresses repentance to unbelievers just in relationship to sin. Jack 17, 30-32 states, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. That's talking about the Old Testament period up to the cross. But now He commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do what? He will judge all men. So it's a call to unbelievers to repent of what? Their sin. This isn't a salvation passage here. It's not talking about repenting of your sins as being part of salvation. It is a recognition that unbelievers will be evaluated on the basis of their works at the judgment seat of Christ, their production. So they have to, they are, and God will judge them temporally on that basis. Their sins were already uh, paid for on the cross, but they are to repent of their human good and those activities. Revelation 9, 20 to 22 does the same kind of thing. But the rest of mankind, this is talking about the second cycle of judgments in the... Uh, second cycle of judgments in the uh, tribulation period, and on the four, I believe this is the fourth. This is the fourth uh, trumpet judgment. The rest of mankind, which is going to be uh, the rest of mankind, which is about a third or two thirds of mankind, one third are killed by plagues. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Now, what's going on here? This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about the fact that God is going to temporarily judge these unbelievers for the sins that they're committing in time. It's not a salvation-related issue. Remember, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. That doesn't mean there's not temporal judgment in relation to it. Revelation 16:9 and following. Men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. See, they're refusing to admit the sovereignty of God, so there's temporal judgment poured out on them because they did not repent of their works. Revelation 16:11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent because of their deeds. Now what we learn from this is that is that you have to understand repentance in terms of its context. Repentance that is addressed to believers is related to sin. 
There's also an address to unbelievers related to their sin because there is temporal judgment. But when the issue is salvation, the object of repentance is to repent from unbelief in terms of changing to belief. And this is used that way just a few times in uh, the book of Acts. So one thing we should note here in order to understand that she is a believer is that the discipline promised her is not the discipline of eternal condemnation or the lake of fire. So if she, if the issue here were repentance for salvation, that is repenting from unbelief to belief, then the issue would not be that I will uh, cast her into her sickbed, but the issue would be I will cast her into the lake of fire. There is no evidence in the text that she's not saved. You know, this is an assumption that so many people make when they read the passages well, because they assume that Christians can't commit acts like this. Well, that's a rather naive view. In eight times, uh, the eight times that the verb metanoeo occurs in these letters, it's not once addressed to the issue of changing from unbelief to belief. So the issue here is not related to her salvation. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, this is another important word that gives us a clue to the fact that these are believers. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. And the word for sexual immorality is the word porneia, which is a general noun for unlawful sexual intercourse. It covers sexual immorality, fornication, homosexuality, adultery, prostitution, and it's used metaphorically for violating the spiritual relationship with God. Porne is a broad, general word indicating physical sexual immorality, but it can also refer to uh, spiritual unfaithfulness. So in this sense, it could be a broad term. She did not repent of her sexual immorality. In verse 22, there is a promise of discipline. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds, once again, of their sinful production. Now, here we find the term cleanae for a bed or a couch. This could be any kind of bed. It can be something positive, what you sleep on. There's a sort of a paranomasia here because in her adultery, uh, and her sexual licentiousness, she was constantly in the bed. But she, now she's going to be cast into a sick bed. And the word can be used for a bed or a couch, but it is also used to refer to a stretcher or a dining couch. Here the context indicates that which is a sick bed. Second important word here is the word adultery. Now, adultery, or moikeo, is a more technical word than porneia. To commit adultery, you have to be married. You don't have to be married to commit sexual immorality. So if there is a violation of a, uh, of a contract here, of a marriage contract, that means there's a relationship between these people and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the core meaning of moikeo is covenant unfaithfulness. So you commit ad- adultery when you break the marriage contract. 
So this indicates a family relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are committing adultery. This indicates that they are believers. Now that's important because the next phrase says, I'm going to cast them into great tribulation. And there are those who want to take great tribulation here as a technical term for the tribulation. But the principle is that these seven letters to these seven congregations must be understood to be historical. They were written to a church in Ephesus. They were written to a church in Smyrna. They were written to a church in Pergamum. These folks have been dead for 1,800 years. And whatever judgments were pronounced here were carried out 1,800 years ago. So this isn't talking about the tribulation period. This is talking about the fact that if they do not change their thinking and change their ways, beginning with confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, and then changing their actions in relation to application of doctrine, God would bring great adversity into their life unless they repent of their works. Now, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ only disciplines those he loves who are part of the family. He's not going to be executing the kind of discipline we see promised in Revelation 2 against uh, Jezebel unless she's part of the family. Hebrews 12, 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. And what we see here is that there is a promise of divine discipline for Jezebel and a promise of divine discipline for those who follow her, her so-called children, which are those who are following her and her teaching. And that indicates that they are indeed believers. You see the same kinds of punishment, divine discipline, indicated in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. For this reason, Paul said, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. The first word there, weak, indicates a spiritual lethargy. It's warning discipline to get the disobedient believers' attention so that they will use 1 John 1, 9, get back in fellowship. Sick indicates those who are now physically ill. There is a dimension to sin, and this brings an intensive discipline where the Lord is bringing a physical sickness upon them. And it is to get the habitually carnal believer to repent and to change. And then third, there are many that sleep. This is the sin unto death, indicated in 1 John chapter 5. That finally, if you're in carnality long enough, the Lord Jesus Christ is just going to take you home. Revelation 2.23 goes on to say, I will kill her children with death. Now the word for death here is is the word thanatos, which means physical death, but it frequently indicates plagues or physical illnesses that culminate in death. Sounds a lot like what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know 
that I am He. What's that word for know? It's the word gnosko. It's coming to an experiential knowledge about something. And here they are learning about the Lord Jesus Christ, that I am He who searches the minds and hearts. The word gnosko is used a couple of times here. I think I got the wrong slide up there. Uh, it's used in the next verse to indicate their uh, experiential knowledge of idolatry. But here it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, to their experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ's discipline. That he is the one who searches erunao. Uh, This is an articular present active participle, and it means to make a careful and thorough examination of something. The Lord Jesus Christ knows everything that goes on in our lives, all of our overt activities and all of the thoughts, uh, motivations that are in our soul. He searches the minds and the hearts. This comes directly out of Jeremiah 17, verse 10. In that verse we read, I, the Lord, search the heart. In the Hebrew there is lave, that is the thinking core of the soul. I search the heart and I test the mind, the kilion, that's literally the kidneys. So it's referring to the immaterial part of the man, both in terms of the thinking core as well as the area that deals with conscience and volition. Conscience gives us norms and standards. Our volition makes a choice between norms and standards. The word conscience means, it comes from the Latin uh, scientia, which means knowledge, and the preposition con meaning with. You make a decision with knowledge. You give approval to something on the basis of knowledge. You disapprove of something on the basis of knowledge. So, Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord Yahweh, search the heart, the thinking core of the soul. I test the mind, that is, the conscience and the volition, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit or the production of his doings. Now, that's the same idea that you have in Revelation 2.23. I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So the word, the, the concept of minds and hearts here in the Greek is the same idea that you have in the Hebrew. The first word minds is really the uh, Greek nephros, meaning the reins or the kidneys, and hearts is cardia. Which ref- and the reins of the kidneys refers to the conscience and volition, and the heart refers to the thinking core of the soul. So it should read, he who searches the conscience and the thoughts, the thinking part of the soul. He who searches the conscience and the thoughts. So it's getting to the motivation as well as the thoughts of the individual in the soul. And then there is the promise of accountability. I will give to each one of you according to your works. Then in verse 24, there is a word to those who have not yet succumbed. He says, now to you I say, and to the, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, that is, these are the believers who haven't yet bought into the doctrines of Jezebel. To, to those who do not have this doctrine, from the verb echo meaning to have or to hold, they don't hold to this doctrine yet, who have not known the depths of Satan. 
See, what was going on was in this form of antinomianism was people had the idea that to really know what's going on, to understand the other side, you have to experience. But because they were already picking up the sort of dualism that you had in Gnosticism, they had the idea that you could go into the temples and you could participate in all of the fertility rites and rituals and it didn't affect your spiritual life. It might affect your body, but it didn't affect your spiritual life. So they were buying into an old form of uh, Platonic dualism, which really came to fruition about 50 years after this in what came to be known as Gnosticism. But you had pre-Gnostic ideas influencing the church during the first century. So these were the ones who had come to know the depths of Satan because they were uh, going to the temples and participating and claiming that it really had no impact on their spiritual life. But the Lord says to those of you who are advancing, as many as do not hold to these doctrines, who haven't known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. No other burden than what? No other burden than holding fast to the Word of God. This is verse 25. But hold fast what you have until I come. Stick with the Word. Stick with doctrine. Don't compromise to get along. Be careful of your social life. Be careful of your business associates. Be careful of the careers you choose and the places you you go in your life. Because as you work for certain places, as you have to live and operate with within the world system, you can put your, your spiritual integrity at risk by being put in a situation where you're forced to compromise your the doctrine in your soul in order to keep your job, in order to be socially acceptable, in order to be politically correct. And the result is that this is destructive to your spiritual life. And God, the Lord, or rather the Lord Jesus Christ, will come with divine discipline and will uh, provide correction and uh, discipline for disobedience. Next time we'll come back and see the promise to the overcomers, who will be, uh, which is given at the end of this verse, which relates once again to Psalm chapter 2, and we'll see how that promise relates to our future destiny with the Lord Jesus Christ, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to come to a greater understanding of the fact that you are intimately involved in everything in our lives, and there will be an accountability both in time and at the judgment seat of Christ in relation to our production. Father, we pray that we would not take these admonitions lightly, but we might, under the guidance of God the Holy Spirit, evaluate what's going on inside of our own souls and our own lives, that we may recognize areas where we may be tempted or pressured to compromise our own integrity and realize that even though there is forgiveness, even though you always meet us where we are, even though there's always the opportunity to recover, The issue is not recovery. The issue is to abide in Christ and spiritual advance. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to be both sure and certain. All you need to do to have salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of repenting from sin. It's a matter of changing from unbelief to belief. 
to trusting in Jesus Christ as the only one who can provide salvation because he died on the cross for your sins. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.